it certainly strikes me that you know you get these clever sometimes indulged creatives mm. and you just wonder if clients in the back of their mind are thinking are we being ripped off here um and that that i think has always been the thing um and then you you know you also every now and meet now and then meet this really really talented but really humble ecd mm. and then you kind of think you actually don't need all of that sort of you know all of the cliches of advertising you know so and that i think is is one of the big challenges is you know it's um there's a disproportionately low number of uh of female leaders in advertising particularly within um creative departments mm-hmm. you know very you know uh, just embarrassingly low proportion of, of 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 anyone from a kind of you know um any any form of ethnic minority Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Tim Burrows, co-founder of media and marketing publishing event group, Mumbrella. We sit down for a couple cokes at the Chippo in Chippendale in Sydney to discuss Tim and Mumbrella's story. Tim shares his observations from a couple decades as a media and marketing journalist, commentator and observer in the UK, Middle East, Australia and across Asia. A fascinating chat about clever, creative people, how the industry is changing and where it is still evolving way too slow. We talk about marketing, art versus science, good versus evil and much, much more. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thanks, thanks, Tim, so much for, for joining us today. Uh, right, where, where, are we, where are we today? What's this? We're in the, we're, we're in the Chippo Hotel in Chippendale. Yeah. I think you can see where they got the name from, which yeah. has been, I suppose, one of Mumbrella's locals. Is that uh, right? Yeah. One I, of a few I over the I, year. I think... I don't know if it's still around, but many, many years ago, I think in Australia there was a there was a, a male strip club, strip group called the Chippendales. <laughs> no, yeah, I, <laughs> and I always I, did this sort of cheeky I boy don't know, kind of. I don't know if they named themselves after the uh, after the suburb or not. I presume it was. Isn't it an item of furniture as well? That's Probably it. that. There we go. Good on you. So I'm going to start this interview cool, off cool, cool. right where I start all of these interviews. What were you like as a kid? Let's, well, let's go right back to what were you like when you were eight, and we'll, and we'll, we'll kind of quickly ramp it up from there. Interesting. Um, I think I was quite well behaved, actually. Quite well behaved? Yeah, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the child of a librarian and a teacher. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so I was certainly very respectful of the school system and yeah. all of that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think I was, I, I was probably quite good. I was... At that stage, I was probably in chess. Would have been my thing. You were what? Chess. Chess yeah, would have okay. been my thing. Where did you grow up? Uh, grew up in uh, in the UK yeah. in a little village called Oakley. Yeah. Which is, How big was the village? Ah, uh, look, um, 
you know, big enough that it had two ponds. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I guess, you know, I don't know, three or 4,000 people maybe. So, yeah. you know. Uh, what was it like growing up in a town like that in the UK? Well, um, it, it, it was really relatively close to the nearest sort of um, larger town or city, which was Basingstoke. So you kind of, you know, that would be where you go to school. You know, you get the bus to school in the morning yeah. and stuff. So, uh, so yeah. So you it was know, a small town, but it sort of yeah. essentially kind of almost yeah, look, I mean, sprawled it would, into another town. Or another think, town yeah, too yeah far, look, it yeah. would think of itself as a village living next door to a town. But, yeah. you know, you were... You were close enough that that was where you went to school, and you know when you're old enough, socialised yeah. and that sort of thing. So you're a studious, a studious kid. You? I, now you're you've been a, a journalist for oh, a good couple of decades, maybe a little That's bit more. That's very kind of you to say, couple. Yeah. Couple. Look, I I got. Did you love writing? Yeah. Look, I, I I mean I did. I always enjoyed English at school and that sort of thing, and was fascinated by the media. But yes, I'm just trying to do my maths in the head. So. Yeah, July 89 was my first newspaper job, so we are approaching that 30th anniversary. Well, it depends how long you take to edit it. Maybe the 30th anniversary has been by by now, you know. <laughs> but um, at the point at which we're chatting, it's a couple of months to go yet. Yeah. So, uh, so did you go to, were you in high school or senior school thinking, I want to be a journalist, or was it all a bit look, more random than that? It was a bit more, in all honesty, it was a bit more random. So although I was fairly studious, I did kind of, when we did A-levels, which is in the UK, that sort of final stage before you go to university, I, I kind of, uh, the lack of supervision saw me go slightly off the rails. So I was very much on the... Um, on the path to failing my exams when luckily I got the job as a journalist you know I, I seem to remember telling them in the interview that I, I expected I'd be getting all A's in my A-levels and um, you know I, th- I think I took the job sort of at least partly thinking you know maybe this will be a, effectively a deferment from university for a year or two but um, you know luckily enough they never asked me how I did in my re- exams when the results did come in and um, yeah you know I never did quite end up going to university either yeah and You've been in media journalism, obviously with Mumbrella, but previously you were media journalist as well. So, and that's in Australia. Well, you were a media journalist in the UK yeah, as well. Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've, I guess I've worked in three main markets really, which is, um, yeah, the sort of, I guess, the formative half of my career was was and a little bit more was in the UK so local newspapers then the sort of you know specialist media so that started off writing for the medical industry for hospital doctors and then then the the, the thing that took me into into the world I'm in now I suppose was um, editing a magazine called Media Week in the UK which was I guess focused on media agencies and the buying and selling of media um, and then that sort of was a route into becoming the launch editor of Campaign magazine in the Middle East, the mm-hmm. uh, the Dubai edition of uh, of that. And uh, after you know having been very glad to leave that after not much more than so what a year. What was it like going from the UK to the Middle East? That must have been uh, a bit of a. Was that yeah. Do you know what to expect? And yeah, look, it was one of those things. I think I was I was I was glad I did it, and I was glad to leave afterwards. You know, you it's a bit of a shock to the system just how lacking in press freedom. Lacking, you know, in lacking in press freedom much yeah. of the Middle East is. So, um, you know, Dubai, you have a certain degree of freedom, but equally, you know, certain degrees of censorship or, you know, at company level, self-censorship. So so that sort of became frustrating. So I sort of, um, I said to myself, well, uh, you know, my, my sort of, I guess my line in the sand... <laughs> Dubai sand but my line in the sand will, will, will be if ever we're actually censored something that I've written or sent to press doesn't get published that'll be the moment to call it a day and you know 
So I threatened that a couple of times and the management backed down and we did publish. Um, and then in the end they called my bluff and uh, uh, it, it, was, it was time to move on, you know, with no hard, yeah, hard okay. feelings. That was, the, you know, that was the reality of publishing in the Middle so East. What, so, so being in an environment where you're... You, you could be censored. So, so what? What? What's like again? What's What's that like? A bit like what's? How, has that? I, I'm assuming that's informed your philosophy on media. Yeah, look, I think, media moving forward. Yeah, but. I mean, I remember chatting to my deputy editor at the time, and there was this sense that you got this sort of bubble in Dubai where the normal rules of publishing don't count, and you just go, you cruise along for an easy life. And I, you know, I remember him sort of saying, "Well, look, you know, maybe we should just think about." going along with things it's Dubai the money's good do it for a year or two and then go back to being professionals when we when we leave and I just thought I think it's a sort of bad habit once you get into you don't get out of so um so yeah look I think in the end because I I always knew um you know what my job was which was to try and do your best to tell the the story to your readers as you saw it Mm -hmm. um I, I, I also knew what the real line would be when I couldn't do that. So, um, so yeah, so when it came, it actually wasn't too hard to make that decision, I suppose. Yeah. And you went back to the UK and then came to Australia? Yeah, or back to the, the UK, thinking that was it for my adventures. Yeah. And then, you know, I kind of like, you know, like many journalists, I spent some of that break writing a terrible novel, which um, luckily never saw the light of day, although I was moving house recently and... Uh, I discovered the uh, half-finished manuscript, and it's every bit as terrible as I remember it. Um, but yeah, no, I thought probably that was it. What was, getting... the, what was the novel about? Oh gosh, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. I can't even no, begin right. to talk about was the contents of it. Romance? Mills and Boone? Ah, oh, look, no, no the, I, I, I literally <laughs> cringe thinking of it. At some point when I really want to punish myself, I'm going to tweet extracts from it, perhaps, but uh, I have to make peace with it first. I think it's pretty bad. Let it go. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that might be what how I old need you to do. You, how old were you when you were writing a novel? So that would have been about, I suppose, so it was just before I came to Australia, so just yeah. over 15 years ago, I yeah, guess. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, yeah. So, what? and of course, there is that old journalist joke as well. I'm writing a book. Neither am I. <laughs> so, what drew you to Australia? How, how did you? Yeah, did look, you to be quite honest, a job available. Yeah, the, 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 to be honest, it was the phone rang. I thought that was it for my adventures. Um, uh, co- a former colleague of a former colleague was looking for an editor of B&T magazine um, here in Australia, which I, I suspect many, you know, many of your audience would know is one of the kind of sort of advertising um news magazines um and it was pretty easy to say yes to the job really because i was available so it was um the uh, the shipping container didn't have time to get back from yeah, dubai okay. before it was time to head That's to australia great. in a way it seemed like you you'd already made that mind to go um, exploring the world and then you kind of came back maybe a shorter time than you would have thought yeah. from dubai and then off to australia again yeah look that's it and i think the thing about australia is certainly for anyone who's grown up in the uk you know we're very very similar worlds so everything that felt a bit weird and alien in dubai felt really normal and easy to settle into and 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 kind of probably as a result easier to appreciate in Mm. australia okay so what was your thought when you first got to australia what was your 
was it a culture shock or did you there was very little culture shock yeah. to be quite honest you know because as i say there was there's so much in common you know particularly having done a year or two of culture shock in dubai i suppose mm-hmm. you know everything worked you know you didn't have to go and queue up at the police station for a whole day and get into three different queues for translation just to get a driving license yeah. filled out you know yeah, things yeah. like that so um so yeah no it, it it was it was very easy to make that transition and i think one of the things about writing about advertising writing about media is as a journalist or as an editor you can look at a story and think well probably what this story lacks is maybe a comment from a strategist and you know you, you might not know who the strategist is but you know that there'll be a mindshare you can ring up and ask to speak to the strategist wherever you are in the world so there's you know the navigation of that world once you know it it's quite an easy transition to yeah, make yeah, okay and the impetus in formulating and, and in launching Mumbrella where did that come from? yeah well look after and it was exactly it was two years to the day that I worked at B&T because I promised my boss I'd do two years and I wanted to to stick to it and as it happened the um the person who'd actually hired me into Australia Martin Lane um who'd been the publisher of B&T at the time he left very quickly uh after I joined went off to work with a former colleague of his um and they started a a sort of uh well the 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 day job was TNT magazine, you know, that kind of backpackers mm. newspaper, which um, which um, which Martin's colleague Ian owned at the time. But they then started a little business off the side of their desks called uh, Focal Attractions, yeah. which at the time was public was was sort of running a few small events for the travel industry, sort of you know aimed at the B two B sector. That's right. Yeah. So I sort of joined them, and I, I came in as a third shareholder. Um, and um, with, the, with the idea of launching, with a, with a terrible idea of launching a series of weekly PDFs for the media industry and the advertising industry and so on. So the original plan was um, to do some, uh, do, do, do some weekly PDFs, but fortunately um, that bit of the plan never actually quite came about. Yeah. And so Mumbrella sold, was it last year? Was it the year before? or? Uh, um, and although we're in a pub, excuse the crunching of ice, I should point out I'm only <laughs> drinking a Diet Coke. In fact, we're not much fun, are we? You're drinking a Coke and I'm drinking I know, a Diet Coke. Well, it, it is Monday. We did the last one of these interviews with Kim Bowen and we, we had a beer in a pub. So that, but now we've, got, now we've got Coke in a pub. We're still in a pub. <laughs> we are still in a pub. That's true. I'm sorry, I forgot what the question was now. Oh, no, um, uh, <laughs> you sold Mumbrella. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, last, just, yeah um, just over a year ago, time, actually. Yeah, yeah it was just, just before Christmas. Um, Christmas the year before last. So we're... We're oh gosh yeah, let's a bit more every year now into our into our new life. Well, yeah. I guess a year and a half now into our new life with our our new owners yeah. diversified. And and a lot of people would look and go, you sold you like and that that's a success and obviously it, it is. So, it, but like in between that point of like from, from I guess my perspective. So how long from the time of launching Mumbrella to selling? Yeah, so I suppose that would have ended up being about eight and a half years. Okay. Although one of the things you don't really realise until you go through the process is just how long and convoluted it is. So it was probably something that is the sale process we probably lived with for a year before we actually got to the point. Yeah, yeah. And it, it seemed just from, from an outsider's perspective, it was Mumbrella was hugely successful and seemed to to gain a great amount of traction amongst the media marketing sector. But was that what you you felt? Was it sort of an an immediate kind of acceptance and adoption? Was there a gap that that you were filling? No, there was was a gap, and it's worth putting on the record. You were were, were 
one of our very early supporters yeah, we were, as well. The, uh, you know, one the of the first one of the, Umbrella 360 conference. That's yeah. right. Yeah, which was 2011, and that was so we'd been we'd been going for maybe two and a half years at that point, and and the, I suppose the game changer for us commercially was starting Umbrella 360 which became a big sort of you know two and a two mm. and a half day conference in Sydney you know thousands of and people come through the door and that grew in numbers very quickly didn't it really? it did really? like even from year one we were doing four streams per day you know hundreds and hundreds of people coming through the door um, and it um, you know we sort of I suppose the way we thought about it was it to try and be a the one really generalist thing we do where whichever bit of media advertising marketing you you work in you can come along and get an overview of everything that's going on in the wider industry mm-hmm. um so that sort of became this sort of you know the the watering the watering hole where all of the creatures come to um and and and, and i suppose from umbrella's business model it really helped to have an event where you're both able to sell tickets and and um get support through sponsorship as well so so you know it's sort of um the event side of the business have really helped us as a as a publishing organization yeah and and clearly sort of like your, your events have become like I'm, I'm assuming they're a big they're, they're, they're the main part of your like, yeah they would stream, be more than the, half now yeah. yeah so we sort of yeah and I suppose the way we sort of think about it is you know we, we our organizing thought still is how do we help our audience in their working life and their career and obviously that's through publishing, telling them the news, you know, writing out what the topics are, the, the you know the, the the debates within marketing, but also you know it can be um, you know through events, through training. Um, obviously, we organise awards as well to recognise best practice, mm. all of those things. But I think that organising thought is okay. Well, we're we're trying to contribute to people's careers in some way, and uh, and I suppose the other organising thought as well is that. When it's an event, it's still something that's got a journalistic approach to it. So it's what does the audience need? What are the issues the audience mm-hmm. is facing? And you know, who are the people we should talk to to solve that? So we, so we do try to bring a sort of journalistic mindset to everything we do. Mm. And I assume it hasn't been all plans rolled out exactly how you'd like oh, them to. Well, what, what are some of the big lessons you, you well, talk look, from? What, what makes a successful online media? Yeah, look, that's the thing. You you try things, and you you definitely zigzag up and down as you go. Some things don't work. So, you know, it it took us a very long time to find momentum in when we launched in Asia, for instance. So we we started off with the, you know, sort of the journalism based out of Hong Kong and the the sales based out of Singapore. Um, And it took a bit of a while to kind of refocus and understand that, you know, a lot of the region is, is, particularly agencies you know a lot of the APAC bosses are in Singapore so mm. let's let's do Singapore first and foremost well um, and that cost us a fair bit of money to get to at that understanding and it's working well now right? and it's working well yeah. so we're about to run so is our that just second a time, is that just time and relationships and all of those things yeah. time in the market um, relationships I think somewhere like Asia people sort of certainly in Singapore sort of tend to assume that it's at least two years before they even think we're around to stay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been um, probably five years now that we've been there. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so that was definitely one where, you know, there was a big investment along the way to, you know, to start generating revenue. And, and probably the other one where we probably dropped more money than we would have liked was when we, um, we bought, um, we bought a, a magazine from... Um, uh, our former employers, which was focused on the kind of the film production community, and I thought was that this could become potentially a sister 
publication to Mumbrella in time a uh, weekly iPad edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, uh, the excitement we all felt as journalists around tablets was not necessarily reflected in the business model that emerged. So we, yeah, okay. you know, we, 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 you know, it probably cost us $200,000 to, 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 to learn that along the way, which yeah. was, you know, it's probably money well spent because yeah. we learned a lot along the way, but equally it was money spent. Yeah. And I guess you reflecting back, you're, we're always wider in, uh, wiser in, um, in hindsight, but how, how do you know what, like, if you were kind of, I guess, advising and consulting with other groups doing the same or similar thing, or how do you know what to go with and what not to? Or is it just you just, you just go with it, you go with it? No, some of it is, I mean, I, you know, I'm a massive fan of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory. Yeah. Just the fact that, you know, if you've got, so I suppose I had my 10,000 hours as a, Journalist, but my 10,000 hours also writing about and understanding media and marketing. I guess now I've got it sort of wearing a sort of publisher hat as well. So you, you, I hesitate to use the word instinct, but you develop instinct mm. based on experience. Um, so you have a sense of what might or might not, but equally, at, at, like in your role, sort of, yes. Yeah, and equally you have to still take risks where you're not sure. So that yeah. first Umbrella 360 was. You know, if I knew now what I didn't know then, I might not have done it because it was incredibly foolhardy launching, launching a conference only three or four months out from the event day. You know, um, if the industry hadn't got behind us so much in that first one, we never would have got there. And, and probably the learning from us was we really did reach out to the industry, and the industry responded and supported us. Um, but yeah, you you know, you try. You try tricky things that you're not. You have a really good feeling that if you can get it right, and if you perform to the best of your abilities, you can pull it off, mm. and that and that there's a good prize at the end of it. Mm. Um, but that's um, you know that that comes also with the fact that sometimes you'll fail as well. And, and what, what's I think what's tended always tended to happen for us is um, our failures have always been when we haven't executed well. Um, it's very rarely been because of an external factor. Does that, ex- that not executing well means it wasn't planned well or you're not having the right people? Or Well, look, at, I mean, it can be a number of things. Planning, we've never been terribly good at planning, so that's definitely one that, that it could be. But, yeah, you know, I always... The ones that I find really frustrating, though, are the ones where I can't tell at the end of it whether something didn't work because it was the wrong strategy or the or poor execution mm-hmm. and those are the you know th- those are the ones where you think i'm not actually sure what i learned from that mm. if, a, a couple of years into mumbrella how many staff did you have around about gosh so a couple of years in we we would have still been maybe four or five at yeah. the most so the so the way we sort of we came out. It was, I was the only employee to start off with, and then in time we sort of hired a sort of part-time salesperson, mm. um, fairly junior, and then eventually another journalist. And, and for a while there was this nice little sort of kind of um, publishing seesaw where um, salesperson would sell out all of the inventory, so you'd hire another journalist to create some mm. uh, some some more content. Yeah, yeah then you'd need to hire another salesperson and, you know, so on. So we sort of, you know, built the publishing side that, yeah. you know, really almost as simply as that, particularly in the early days. But, but yeah, to answer your, 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 to answer your question, I mean, we, we've sort of, I guess if we were to, to 
draw a line. It's probably fairly straight, but we sort of draw a line that goes from um, about, uh, well, one person ten years ago to just over 40 people now. About 40 people now, yeah. In those early days, when you've got, oh, clearly got you and the, um, I guess the owners have got a clear vision in your mind of what you're creating, whether it's exactly turns out like that or, or not how do you maintain the enthusiasm of the guys joining it when they can just see things going well but but often when you're inside an organization like that it seems like whether it's reality or not maybe on reflection it, it, it all looks great but it seems like more shit hitting the fans so how do you kind of maintain that enthusiasm of I don't know, younger and not so young team members to go stick with us it'll work out fine and we'll get there in the end look i I think when you're genuinely still in that startup stage, yeah. you 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 do have this sort of momentum that takes you along, you know. And I'm, I suppose, what I'm lucky enough to have been is I've, I've not, I've not there had the experience to have been in a startup that failed. So, you know, there were, you know, there were plenty of moments where I thought, oh, I'm not sure if this one's going to come off or not. Mm. But there were never real moments where I thought this isn't going to work yeah, out. Okay. Um, so it always so, felt like... Know, even if there were fail- failures within yes. of aspects of what you were doing as a as an overall business, it was it was. You could, yeah, we were always growing, success. so it always felt like there was there was there was a direction we were moving in, you know. So so actually, you know, for for me, I think almost the harder thing is as you become a bigger, more mature company, how do you? Uh, create a culture that isn't doesn't just come up organically mm. when you're not a startup anymore and you can't just yeah, you know right. you don't you, you you can't all you can't tell the team by just saying it once and everyone around you hears it and that's it so, so now your challenge is keeping the enthusiasm when you're not yeah when you're yeah, not new and, and exciting and yeah and doing it when it's not you know when it's not organic you know it doesn't come naturally because you know not everyone in the room is going to is going to you know hear something at the same time, for instance. So, how do you remember to make sure that everybody knows everything that's that, that, that's important that's going on? Just just all of those things that when when you you, you come to the point where you've actually got to think about this stuff, it's yeah. not just going to happen on its own. Yeah. Does that mean the sort of you, your, how your how your team works together just has evolved over time? Like, a, yeah, it, look, it really has. I mean, you know, we you know, and obviously the thing is you you get to the point where the, you suddenly find yourself with a lot more good people around you as well. So, you know, you know, so for a while, like, it became fairly obvious as we were doing more events that we really needed to um, put some more marketing efforts in. You know, so I sort of hired a marketer. Well, in fact, the start of the process was I stepped back from the New Year's for a few months and I was our first marketer mm-hmm. and that was what I focused on as a sort of I guess almost proof of concept um, but then we hired a marketer and you know now we've got quite a large marketing team mm. um, but you know that um, so that now means you know there's a really grown out marketer on our leadership team you know similarly you know Mumbrella um, although I sort of have editorial responsibility we have an editor who takes the ultimate responsibility for what we're publishing every day. So, mm-hmm. again, you've got, you know, a really sort of strong journalist who I can sort of lean on there. You know, similarly, you know, over the years, our salespeople have got better and better. Mm. So, you know, really strong sort of, you know, salesperson is what you sort of leading the sales team as well. So, so all of us, you know, all of a sudden you kind of, whichever department you look in, you know, sort of the, you know, the team who deliver our events, the, the team who um, curate the content of our events, there's... 
a strong leader within that leadership team yeah, and then okay. the challenge for us is much more about okay how do you bring all of these strong individuals together as one leadership team and that's probably the big project yeah, we're working okay. on at the moment yeah, yeah. actually Sorry, was that, uh, and that's probably the big project at the moment is for us on coming together as as a genuine team as yeah, opposed yeah. to a series of leaders yeah okay okay so those competencies build as the the success of the business of Mumbrella has, has built and yeah, I'm absolutely. assuming you can attract stronger people as, as well. Well, that's and the thing. I mean, obviously, you know, you get to the point where the brand becomes, becomes known in its world. So I think the first couple of years I spent half the time on the phone saying, yeah, like Umbrella with an M in front every time I left a message anywhere. But, you know, so that probably helps for recruitment. And also... You know, as you become bigger, obviously you've you've got a bit more resource, so you can, you know, you 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 can afford to pay the market rate for good people. Mm-hmm, mm. um, like, I, I guess I'm kind of interested in kind of your observations over media and marketing. I guess primarily in Australia, but what what have you sort of? I guess whether it's obviously you're in you're in media yourself, but also just observing media and marketing. What have you been really pleased to see how it has evolved? So we'll talk about the the positives and then we'll talk about some of the sort of not so positive. What have you seen as some of the things that have changed? And obviously you've got the ear of... An ear and mouth of many kind of key key people in media and marketing. What, what's what have been some of the major positive changes? So. Well, look, I mean the the positive, and I'm not sure if it's always a change. As I agree, it's always been there. But the the thing I still really like is when you're just you're in someone's office, or you're having lunch with them, or you're having coffee with them, and they're just so clever. And that's one of the things about mm. this industry is there's so many intelligent, clever people who it's just really stimulating to talk to so that that's that's great and then i think we see you know any any given time you see examples of that that showing itself in new so ways clever in terms of knowing what the trends are and like, like yeah absolutely clever in offering an insight clever in how they think about people and that's the things you know diff, you know different people bring something different to it sometimes it's just you know a wonderful insightful pithy speaker you know mm-hmm. so um or, or sometimes, yeah, it's just a strategist who thinks about the world in a in a different way. Mm. So, so I think it's been really interesting, you know, looking at looking at how agencies have responded to the world, you know, and responded to the changing world. Um, you know, I love looking at agencies like um, CHEP, CHE Proximity, yeah. and how they're sort of rising to the challenge of the consultancies by sort of playing them at their own game, mm. but still having that kind of sort of you know agency underpinning as part of the wider sort of Clemenger group. So. You know, I've got a bit of a hunch they might be a bit of a potentially in time some sort of global business model. Yeah, okay. So, so that seeing stuff like that emerge is really fascinating. You know, I mean, let's not forget that you know, um, Naked Communications. You know, they were in their time, sort of maybe fifteen years ago, they absolutely redefined how media planning was done. They're Australian owned. Mm-hmm. You know, they you know a lot of their you know, they, they they launched in London, but they're Australian owned now, and a lot of their DNA still underpins a lot of the cleverest agencies here in yeah. Australia. So yeah. there's, you know, there there is a a lot to find interesting about walking into your average agency. Yeah. So those clever people able to rethink how the industry is changing. It's clearly where it's a, an industry facing, for want of a better term, disruption and look, and that's a degree the thing. of chaos, really. So yeah, look, it is, and and that's probably two things: is you you absolutely have clever people rethinking the industry, but you also having you you know, let's admit you also have clever people 
you know, almost trapped within a system and a model that is really, really challenged as well. So, you know, that, that I think is one of the big challenges for agencies is, is that even if they're very good at helping clients solve their problems, that doesn't automatically mean the business model will always support them. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, discussions I had with Kim Boehm, he was from ex uh, and he was the talent and marketing manager at the end of uh, for Clemingers. And we, we talked about kind of retaining good staff and one of the challenges that we discuss in, in advertising is oh, back a couple decades ago, if you were a clever, creative person, of course you go into advertising, go into creative services. But nowadays there's so many different career options. You can go into tech, you can go into entrepreneurship or, or whatever else it might be. So so advertising, media and marketing is, has, a, has a, 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 I guess, a challenge in attracting the best and brightest. What's your observation in that regard? Yeah, look, that's true. And I think it's probably even harder for, you know, parts of that communications world with even lower visibility. I think, you know, that joke for media agencies has always been that, you know, media agency staff's mum don't know what they do for a living. Mm. Um, and it's it's probably truer than ever, you know, and there are so many other places that, that can go. But, yeah, that, that absolute glamour that, you know, somebody who is you know, the executive creative director of a big advertising agency would almost have a degree of fame or they mm-hmm. would, would do for some of the big ones. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. That's you know, right. so I, Yeah, I always had that sort of, we're at a pub now, but if, going up to a bar 20 or so years ago saying, hey, what do you do for a job? I work in advertising. And people go, oh, really, that sounds fascinating. But I'm assuming possibly now not, not as much and a lot of advertising people or or other sectors within them. I'm, I'm, I'm in research, so we're probably, probably the same, I'm sure. But it, it's not that same uh, level of kudos, and, and even to the point where it's got that shame about it. There's research showing that of all, this, all the trust in different professions, advertising is pretty well down the bottom with real estate agents. So what, what's your, like, how do you fight against that? Have you sort of yeah. seen, seen employers and, uh, within the advertising sector, marketing sector, doing that well? Well, look, and I suppose one of the things is, you know, let's let's be honest. You know, we, we do have a proportion. I don't want to say disproportionately large proportion, but maybe. But, you know, we certainly have a proportion of, you know, shonks and shysters working mm. in advertising as well. I think probably we always have. But, you know, it, it, it certainly strikes me that, you know, you get these clever, sometimes indulged creatives... Mm. And you just wonder if clients in the back of their mind are thinking, are we being ripped off here? Um, and that, that, I think, has always been the thing. Um, and then you, you, know, you also every now and, meet, now and then meet this really, really talented but really humble ECD. Mm. And then you kind of think you actually don't need all of that sort of, you know, all of the cliches of advertising, you know. So, and that, I think, is, is one of the big challenges is... You know, it's um, there's a disproportionately low number of, uh, of female leaders in advertising, particularly within um, creative departments. Mm-hmm. You know, very you know, uh, just embarrassingly low proportion of uh, of of anyone from a kind of you know um, any any form of ethnic minority. Um, so it's not it's not an industry which reflects the world in which it covers. Um, you know, in the world in which it's trying to speak, uh, it's not an industry which behaves in a way that um, 
would in, you know would would engender respect from their clients. You know, you go along to your average industry awards night, and um, you know, I. It's not always impressive behaviour that you see. I, I, I remember chatting in what to way? One, in what well, it, uh, you know, it, it feels like what's the best way of putting it? I remember chatting to a strategist who'd, who'd left a big agency because I think he just reached that point. He said, you know, he was talking about Cannes, um, you know, the both the awards but the event. He was just saying, you know, do the advertising industry not understand that the clients think it's Versailles? You know, you've got the kind of this massively kind of you know indulged group of people who um you know, still get very good salaries for doing what they do but then outside you've got clients thinking can you guys really justify this you know mm-hmm. hasn't the world changed a little bit so um so yeah so it it, it feels to me like you, you you don't want the advertising world to feel just like another profession, you know, banking mm-hmm. or accounting or something. But I'm not sure it's always respected as professional, which I think should be its ambition. Do you think that's changing? And, and there's a lot of sectors and advertising and marketing's just one of them has a reputation of, yeah, parties with lots of booze and it's lots of blokes. And, and I kind of get that sense that things are... Slowly. At least the conversation is changing. And yeah, look, the conversation is definitely changing, but it's changing so slowly. Mm. Um, you know, and it and it feels like it's and, and you know, and large groups within that industry are you know those who rather like it the way it exists. Uh, you know, if not actively resisting, they're certainly not not doing their bit to make the change happen as as fast as it's happening in that outside world. Mm. Even I, and I guess. It, 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 it's an industry we're talking very broadly about a, a lot of different sectors that fall under uh, under your umbrella so to speak uh, but it is it is changing and I'm sure that's a, in amongst the bravado of the creativity and etc it's, it, it's, it's surely sort of stressful when uh, clients aren't spending as much money on telly which is a, a, a obviously a higher budget media spend uh, and so things are changing. So they've had to rethink how they do it. So there's a, a, awards and the likes are a little, about, little bit about rewarding the team, I'm sure, about great work and, and work well done, and, but also about kind of being able to, to sell it. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of, like, you must see it more than I do about, well, we're trying to sell and, and then it's, we're trying to compete. We're trying to win that account off that agency over there. And like, Yeah, look, I think What have you seen in that regard? Yeah, look, there's, there's definitely a real need... And this has always been the way for agencies to put their best foot forward, show off the best work, show what they can do. Mm. Um, because, yeah, you know, what you want is to be in a position where when a client is, is thinking about running a pitch, they think, well, I want to hear from such and such. And they do that in different ways. Sometimes it's, you know, thought leadership through, you know, what people write or how they present at conferences or you know, mm-hmm. even if they go on TV for some people, you know, yeah. like, you know, I think the, you know, the Gruen transfer is probably, or Gruen as it yeah, became known as probably, you know, made more than one industry career. Um, uh, you know, so I think that the, 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 the sort of the agency who sort of just plays the, my work speaks for itself card, um, doesn't always do as well as it deserves. Mm. What, what do you believe makes a, a like a in moving forward a great creative agency? What, what's changing? What, what's, what new skills are they bringing on? 
what are you observing about the, the positive changes? Yeah, look, that's a tricky one because it's... I wonder how... And I'm just thinking about your question, the word creative in Great Creative mm. Agency. Um, because I think more and more, the you know, the... You know, I'd argue the real question is Great Agency because, you know, the... the yes, absolutely, a creative idea will always be the bit that, you know, drives real value for the client. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think of a creative... If, if you're defining a creative agency as, you know, the people who come up with a 30-second ad or the people who come up with, you know, the new billboard or even, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a new digital execution, that's probably not really um, thinking widely enough about what the real problem they're trying to solve for the client is. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, the ones that do it well or have the potential to do it well are the ones who are thinking about it more widely but still underpinning it with some form of great creativity that can, you know, help make a brand famous. Yeah. And we're seeing, I guess, one of the big changes I guess I've observed over the last decade or so is is the big four accounting groups like the Pricewaterhouse and the Deloitte's and Ernst Young going into marketing consulting and marketing advisory so and even buying stakes in or research agencies or i think pwc i think has a small stake or has a stake in tinkerbell correct is that that that's a, a notable like for me anyway a notable sort of change in the thinking of those groups yeah look it's been fascinating as you say pwc with a stake in tinkerbell and also of course just their their cmo advisory offering you know kind of headed up by russell howcroft speaking mm-hmm. of growing people right. um you know, so they've pushed hard. Deloitte, obviously, we've seen, um, uh, you know, investing heavily themselves in that space. Um, you've got um, uh, Accenture buying the monkeys. Yeah. Um, uh, also, elsewhere in the world, Droga 5. Hmm. Um, you know, a couple of really big agencies. So that, that's been huge. Um KPMG actually has a really big advisory that's flown under the radar to a mm. certain extent. You know, be, you know, be, it would certainly be in triple figures the number of people working there. So that that's changing the game on the consultancy side of things. Some of which I think is a, um, you know, it's an aggressive play, but some of it is defensive as well. It's just the mm. fact that, you know, particularly for the big four, you know, accountancy isn't going to bring in the dollars it once did as it mm. becomes, you know, easier to do, you know. To, to publish accounts and the basics of it so um, so they need to look to new places and it does feel a bit like Australia has been a real place for experimentation with that, yeah, so, yeah, is that right? so okay. it feels to me like a lot of the consultancies have invested more in Australia in that space than they have necessarily elsewhere in the world just yet so um, I think we are in the middle of a great consultancy experiment yeah that, that's interesting we've done, we've done a fair bit of professional service work over the the years and you look at say legal services and they by and large haven't changed they, they by and large legal services are still a bunch of lawyers as partners who fundamentally don't don't hasn't really changed a lot maybe other than they don't employ as many graduates as they used to employ where we're accounting maybe because they've they've been forced to they've got zero you can kind of do it yourself they've been forced to become a, a wider consultancy model it's, it's interesting isn't it so yeah and, and clearly there's an opportunity there for them as well um and it'll just be really interesting to see how big that opportunity is because you know you I mean, people always joke about it, but maybe the time comes when people really do get tired of paying someone a lot of money 
um, to tell you what you should do, but then not actually executing it for you, which of course is, is, has always been the criticism of the consultancies. Yeah. Uh, and then that's interesting is them buying the agencies, whether that closes that part of the loop. What else have you seen that you think is pretty cool or a good way to go? I had lots of things that you could say, a lot of things that have changed, but... but yeah. Marketing science seems to be a bigger thing. We've got Yeah, look, I love behavioural AI economics. AI's become a more of yeah. a thing. Than... Like, behavioural economics is such fun. I... I'm not sure how big a tool it should be in the marketer's toolkit, yeah. whether it's just a fun bit on the side, you know, understanding, you know, pricing psychology or whatever it might be, you know, loss aversion, etc., etc. Um, but... Whether that's just a fun distraction, as I was having this debate with someone um, not long ago, um, but but yeah, certainly again, you know, we do the the M six conference, marketing science conference, which um, uh, Adam Ferrier from Thinkabel curates for us or with us, um, and it's often the most fun day of the year, just because the ideas are so interesting you know and the kind of the psychology of it is just just fascinating but yeah that's a good one um as you say ai um and then there is that question of what's really ai you know are, if half of the companies who claim to have done campaigns using ai really had mm. then it would be very very impressive you know when, when does a basic computer algorithm become ai is you know mm. so so there i think there's a danger that word will become a little bit devalued yeah. um but you know but equally you know if even half of the potential consequences that people talk about of you know when we finally hit the singularity and we can't tell what you know what's, yeah, what's computer right. and what's human um potentially it changes everything about the way we market so yeah. that could be really fascinating well it's so fascinating it's almost not worth thinking about it now because it was so different we won't be able to conceive of how different yeah. it is i guess it, it, do you see marketing as being art and science so i, I guess i'd I kind of get that sense that the science bit seems to be winning rather than the, the art side of it. Where, where do you yeah, see the balance? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, look, I think the that's probably true. I mean, in, in, in many places, the science is still winning, but you do... You get mar- you get plenty of marketers who... who and have we gone who, too far to the science Yeah. Um, yeah, but look, I, can, I mean, I can think of brands and I can think of marketers who, who would still, you know, do stuff on... You know, on instinct. You know, look at hey, we were talking about Clem Clemens earlier. Look at Clem's Melbourne. You know, the work, the work, the work. You know, um, which obviously is the sort of the you know the global positioning of BBDO. Um, and it's absolutely you know at the heart of it is still creative ideas, um, and they will generally come out of um, the sort of brainwave you have in 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 the pub rather than at your desk. Mm-hmm. So I think you know they. There is still that side of things, I think. Um, so there's still that debate that you see, yeah, right? the marketing the, science yeah. side versus the, the yeah, more look, art side of it. Yeah, look, and I think it's all, one of those ones that it always will be. You know, I'm 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 almost nervous to buy into it because I feel like I've I've put, asked that question at, on too many of our conference stages. You know, art versus science. Should you? Um, you know, should you back your instinct versus versus data? Yeah. All of those. And things. I get the sense sometimes, though, that almost the science side is winning sometimes because I mean, marketers want to have a sense that it's not just not yeah. just sort of um, 
not just intuition. It's, there's a science about it. Maybe it's a little bit of ego saying it's a science. And Yeah, maybe the danger of that, though, is it's. I suspect it's probably better at giving you reasons not to do something yeah. than reasons to do something. Yeah, okay. um, look, you know, maybe kind of as a kind of retrospectoscope, looking backwards, the data can be good, but... I think predicting what will work for advertising and marketing, that's a lot tougher call. That's right. And marketing getting down to, I guess it comes back to the science side of marketing, of going, here are the five rules and the things you follow to make it work. I guess marketing science comes back to it's about mental and physical availability and comes... Do you have any kind of thoughts on that or where you're seeing that going? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I... I got distracted there. Yeah, the no, no. It, I, I guess about sort of mental and physical availability, yeah. and I guess the marketing science bringing it down to almost a, I guess some would argue, I'd say a formula. But if you do these three or five things, your brand will grow, etc. <laughs> yes, and of course, the, um, you, can, you can see the attraction to that sort of thinking as mm. well for marketers because no one wants to fuck up, you know. Um, so if there was a formula to follow, then, then then you can see why people would be attracted to it. Um, and of course, there were rules, you know. We I mean, read great rules over the what was that about twenty two immutable laws of advertising and how to break them. You know, great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or how brands grow. Yeah. Um, which uh, from Byron Sharp, which um, been hugely successful, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. hugely successful book. And in wow, imagine if as many people had read it as have got it on their bookshelves. That's it right. would be. Oh, I think uh, it's funny on things like LinkedIn where. Somebody will have a, a claim and they'll go, what do you think, Byron? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. Um, and, you know, in a nutshell, his is um, spend a load of money on TV and, if I understand it rightly, your market is as big as possible, your addressable market could possibly be. So if you're selling Mars bars, your addressable market is anyone with a mouth. Um, which, um, you know, again, it's seductive. You can see why people people like it but equally there's, there's a bit of science to it you know mm. the whole sort of um, everyone's talking about the long and short the short of it at the moment mm. the Binet and Field book which is very much here's some evidence that when you both do short term activity but you back it up by spending 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 on brand building then that works better over time mm. um, I guess that's a form of rules isn't it yeah. how, how are you going time wise um Good, mate. Yeah, maybe another 15 minutes or so. Yeah, okay. No, we're we, we fine. What about uh, marketing good versus evil? Mmm. Yeah, look. I imagine anyone who's worked in advertising at some point has that long, dark tea time of the soul where they say, am I actually making a contribution or not? Um, and, you know, that, that absolutely has to be asked in the advertising world. Look, I... I think overall it's better that advertising exists than it doesn't. Mm. You know, I I'm not saying the capitalist but is it done for the better good or is it done not. Well, this is the thing. Tricky. This is the thing because I think you know I'm not saying that capitalism is perfect, mm. but equally it's kind of the best we've got available, um, and capitalism without helping mm. brands make consumers aware of what they do and what the products are. Um, doesn't really work. Yeah. So, you know... So without advertising, there's not a strong economy and there's not jobs, etc. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, boring as it sounds. That's also kind of true. Mm. 
And obviously there's social marketing, like road safety and a few of those others out there, do you? Yeah, yeah, which feels like the sort of, what you don't want is that the bit say, you know, it's kind of like, I know there's all that terrible thing out there, but look over here and that one nice thing. But, um, but, you know, I think, you know, there's absolutely no shame to be had in Coles telling us the price of milk tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's fine. Yeah. You know, that that's what makes the economy tick over. Yeah. So I don't I don't think we should feel embarrassed about that. Yeah, yeah. Well is there a line that might you sort of you must have seen many examples of good campaigns and not so good campaigns or good agencies or not so good agencies or, or marketers or the likes where they just cross a line that goes from being kind of ethically okay and maybe kind of just the line gets blurred it's, it's not yeah look and i think the line moves as well you know clearly there was a time when cigarette advertising or working mm, in tobacco exactly. was more acceptable um and it feels like questions are being asked about alcohol advertising now in a way they never were um a lot of society i think is uncomfortable with gambling advertising and betting advertising now mm. you know so that that feels like there's a real growing level of concern yeah. around that it was it was interesting i was at the um advertising week europe conference in london mm. a few weeks back and there was just this real kind of uh, just underlying tone of concern around betting ads and and you know particularly on sport much like here in australia and just the effect that can have you know on uh, you know on the vulnerable also on the young um so that that one feels like that's a line that's moving and I think we might we may look back and think and does that, that come from a, a society view that maybe this is not acceptable behaviour is that do you think yeah, that's where I it comes so. conversation I, in media or yeah look I, I it feels to me like your your average Australian these days if you ask them probably say yeah geez, there is a lot of betting advertising on TV at the moment mm. and if they've got a kid and they don't want them to see it then they they would probably have a hard time stopping them from seeing it if they like mm, sport. Mm. That's right. I was watching, uh, I, I've seen it before, but watching, uh, was going back to the first episode of Mad Men, and it was all about yeah, smoking. I think they just had a rule come in saying that, uh, I think it was Lucky Strike was the cigarette company, but they had a rule come in saying uh, you could not say one cigarette was more healthier than another cigarette. <laughs> so they're going, how can we advertise our cigarettes? So that was quite an interesting one, and they're all in the, the pub's, Look, drinking a, and smoking and there's always a moving target who knows um there might be a time when um you know sugar is uh seen as a massive evil yeah do you find in any conversations you have i guess it's hard in a marketing manager sense because you, you pick your job but uh, like it could be a pr agency it could be a it could be a, an ad agency or, or other other form of consultancy having I guess ethical guidelines of we'll work with these types of companies, not these type of companies. I would say we won't work for cigarette companies, for example, or we won't won't work for sugar companies, which is hard because they pay more money than the government sort of the government side. What might be anti it? It's yeah. Look, there's a couple of issues as well, aren't there? Because you know, I imagine certainly on agency side, at least half the people work for one of the big holding companies, yeah, right. and a lot of them work with tobacco in some way. Yeah. Now, is there a difference between is it okay to work for a big holding company who works with tobacco mm. if you don't actually work on that account yourself? You know, mm. what, what is that moral line? Yeah. So that's definitely, you know, sort of been a, a moving question. Now, we um, at our uh, ComsCon conference, which, which covers PR, 
um, we had a speaker from Philip Morris mm. um, talking about life beyond smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... I won't mean, say it's controversial because I think we got two people mentioned it on LinkedIn, so I don't don't think two counts as a controversy. But certainly the question was raised on whether you should even give a platform to people mm. from the tobacco industry. But but equally, I would have imagined that half or three quarters of the people in the room work for organisations that do work with yeah, tobacco okay. in some way, you know. And it's and it's clearly really uncomfortable as well. We talk about being at that. Um, Advertising Week Europe conference, mm-hmm. you know, there was a question to Mark Reed, boss of um, WPP globally now, and he was so squirming and uncomfortable mm. answering the question. Um, it was like it was a really smooth presentation, but that was the, the only moment where he he lost his way was when he was challenged about tobacco because he just didn't have an answer. He and he he didn't. He didn't want to publicly justify the mm. fact that they have clients in the space. Not a simple answer, is it? No, really? no, 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 it's not. No. So you get rid of that business, and that's a large chunk of work. And yeah, and you've you got go. a duty to your shareholders as well if you're the CEO of WPP. That, that, that's right. And you get to the, like let's say, sugar becomes the, the mm. new the new yeah. smoking, and who's not going to take Coca Cola yeah. as an account? I, or yeah, the, 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 that's, a, that's an interesting. Well, look, one, and I suppose I one of the good things about the Banking Royal Commission was it did kind of establish that your duty to shareholders mm. can go beyond short-term profits, you know, the looking after, you know, your public doing the right thing can be seen as as um, delivering value to shareholders. So it's not... So making that determination, we don't do work for these types of organisations. Exactly, yeah, because it's in the long-term fine, yeah. best interest of the organisation. Yeah. The research agency I started working for in Melbourne when I first left uni... I think they. I think it was. They don't, we don't do work for arms, like as in sort of defence, like arms, military arms, and I think it was smoking at the time. But that was just a. I don't know if it was a written rule or whatever. But I think. But maybe you need to set it right at the back because you don't want to have a client come in saying, "Do you or don't you?" We, we do a fair bit of work on, on the anti side of smoking. So over the years, when we've been asked to do smoking work, we kind of politely say no. But there's a shit more money in pro-smoking than anti-smoking and that's the same thing in gambling I think it kind of comes back to a from a government side of saying I know, know on the problem gambling side how much work, how much money government puts into problem gambling advertising is like a speck because well, they get so much revenue amount, out of it yeah. and, and of course and you also see a lot of the responsible gambling organisations are effectively industry funded exactly you know, that's to, right you know to, 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 and that's the thing I suppose is is you know that's what the industry does well with the ad standard funding the ad standards board is it keeps away but by regulating itself it it it, it stops you know tougher law changes so so you know so and that always is the challenge for the advertising industry is is to you know create as permissive an environment as possible for its members and for, for agencies but at the same time move with society um so that I guess advertising is always within the mainstream. Mm. Do you think advertising will become irrelevant in um, twenty years' time? As you can, you can say, oh, "I want a pair of shoes." That just sends you a pair of shoes. I don't really need to know a brand. Let's change or... the word advertising to marketing. Okay, marketing. because because then I think it's an easier question to say no. Because yeah, absolutely, it'll change. It'll be, um, hey Siri. Book me a table at my favourite restaurant. Siri, booking you a table at your favourite restaurant. 
Siri has shown me an Italian place. So I'm going to turn Siri off at that place. Yeah, okay. But um, it's not that far. As you see, Siri is offering to call the Italian yeah. place for me now. Soon enough, Siri will know yeah. where I like to go. That's right. And, and good we'll make the decision and it'll book the table. And it's a new form of SEO optimization. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, it, 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 instead of SEO optimization, it's personal assistant optimization. Yeah. So that's still a form of marketing, you know, because you've, you've just got to win the battle of. But needing the, to have ads will change. Yeah, I guess at some point, hey, you know, restaurants is, is, is not the best example. But at some point, I need to have just, you know, I went over there and I ordered a Diet Coke. Um, now, I don't know why, because I prefer Pepsi Max. So supply and demand comes into it because they, they never seem to have that behind the counter. Um, but, you know, at some point, you must have absorbed some advertising and marketing messages to have a preference. So, you know, maybe that, you know, the, 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 the battle shifts. Um, but, you know, there, you know, you're, you're still going to need to influence consumers in the first and that place. Need for those clever people as you referred to earlier to to think about problems and how do we sell more widgets or how do we be front of mind will continue yeah and it will well seem into the future. and it will seem magical and it will seem like it's in the background i um i remember when i first came to australia um you know a couple of weeks in a you know apartment hotel or whatever got myself an apartment in Surrey Hills in Sydney so I had to equip the whole thing and I just remember the lunchtime finding myself at Chatswood Chase shopping centre thinking well you know literally looking through the list of shops and thinking oh there's a Harvey Norman upstairs I'd been in the country about two weeks Mm. but somehow I already knew that there was a Harvey Mm. Norman and that was where I should go and that could only have been through you know an incredible marketing machine to have got enough messages to me that mm. I was unaware they'd even reached That's me fine. that, you know, right at that top end of the funnel, I was already there. So, um, so yeah, that, you know, advertising is disappearing into the background a bit, but That's that doesn't fine. mean it's not there. And that's interesting because I, I know a lot of work we do, we, we um, I guess we monitor campaigns to see if they've been effective or not. And, and people go, have they seen our ads? I go, well, they don't know if they've seen your ads or not, but like we can see that you're somehow rather with a with the omnipresence of your brand they're more aware of it than what they were six months ago but they don't know where they heard it or saw it or they can't quite remember your ads but maybe a a couple years ago when tv was more prominent they go oh yeah i can remember that tv ad so it's just it's changing the dynamic of kind of filtering into your brain you'll have it really is which is a research you just know asking that kind of recollection question is so useless isn't it it's like when I see the messages on Facebook saying do you remember seeing a Renault ad I have no idea mm. clearly you're only asking because they're a client and you want to show that the you, you that, um, that, that you showed me one um, but yeah as a customer you don't know yeah yeah and maybe that's the therein lies the opportunity for clever curious marketers of the future to go well this is to unpack what the answers are because where he's going, I don't know if I can know what the answer is. <laughs> it's, it's just been able to, to really look at what, what that actually might be. Yeah. yeah, look, I suppose the more... The more, in the end, the industry can understand what motivates consumers, mm. the better job it's going to do. Yeah, that's good. So we started off with you as a young boy, um, OK at school, but then a little bit worried at the end and it all turned out okay, obviously. What would you suggest to young people coming through now? 
about successful life, career? Um, what would you be telling a look, young, you, well, young look, Tim? I, think, I guess the thing is, if you're lucky enough to know what you want, that feels like half of the battle. Um, you know, deep down, I think I knew I was fascinated by media. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to find a way in. Um, and I suppose, yeah, when you think about sort of hiring people into a first role or people I know have been hired into a first role, it's that, it's what, it's finding something that just gets you across the line. Mm. Like for me, actually, I was, I, I, I was lucky. I, you know, I was doing this tiny little sort of part-time, non-exam-based course that had the word journalism in the title at, at, well, I was doing those A-levels and it was just enough for when my boss was um, thinking about giving me a job or not. Bit of extra proof that I was really interested. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing is, is, you know, if you really want to do something, find some extra ways of giving your first employer proof that you really mm-hmm. want to do it. So putting yourself out there and going looking, really. So being, being, being proactive. How do you find, like, young guys coming through? Do you... You know, there's a real mixture. I mean, you, you, you know, we've we've hired people who've come to us as interns mm. in the past who've been, you know, fantastic and are well on the way to glittering careers, and and other people where you just feel a bit frustrated at how they've not taken the opportunity. You know, so you'll, you know, you'll you'll find some people all just badger a little bit, and that's the thing. Uh, uh, yeah, when you're looking for journalists, you want someone who nags a bit. Can be a bit of a pain, but also you want them to be your nagger. Um, versus, yeah, you know, people who sort of come in the office and, and kind of wait to be given stuff or wait to be told stuff. You just yeah. think, yeah, you know, it's probably not going to be the industry for you. Do you think, do you think that's changing, the, the, the need for younger people to kind of show where they're enthusiastic and probably, I guess it's always probably been the way, hasn't it, really? But yeah, sort of, look, it, yeah, look, I think it's always... It's always been the way that... Um, an employer is making a decision usually based on a lot of people. So it's what can you do to make a difference? And clearly, you know, if you haven't got five years' experience, you can't imagine you've got five years' experience. But, you know, you can demonstrate something else. Like way, way back when I was on local papers, I remember... Um, being ready to interview someone for a sort of, you know, a reporter job and just getting a tip off from the um, the press officer for the local council that this person had rang up just to have a chat and find out about the area and stuff. So that was like, oh, well, that's pretty impressive that they're just doing a bit of research beforehand mm-hmm. like that. Um, now, I don't know how much of it was just theatre in the hope that I would find out they were doing it. Yeah. But, you know, I was, if, even if that was the case, I was quite impressed with that as well. Yeah. Versus I remember at the same time interviewing someone else saying, what do you think of the newspaper? And he said, well, I had a look in reception just now. It looks all right. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't get the job. So it's showing you care, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So just just to finish up, uh, a couple of questions. You're you've got a little place in Tassie now, is that right? Where I have I have a shack in northwest Tasmania. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of a place called Sisters Beach, which is kind of way beyond. You sort of go Launceston, uh, Devonport, Burnie, uh, Wynyard, yeah. Sisters Beach. Why did you, why did you buy that? Uh, a big Wenor. Why, why did you buy oh, that? I, um, look, I love Tasmania. Um, yeah. You know, I think for many of the reasons I I, I, I I love so many bits of Australia, including South Australia, you know, I guess there's a single thing I really appreciate about being in Australia after, you know, I mean, the UK is 
it's got many beautiful spots. But Australia is an amazing country with so many peaceful spots. So um, yeah, I'm yes, I'm 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 happiest when I'm at my shack. Yeah, is it is it your spot for your future novel? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, look, I think I I, I would like to think that. Um, well, we've saved Australia or the world from ever having to face a novel from me. Surely you can sort of revamp your novel you started when you were... That could be an interesting novel. Started it when well, I was 22 you know, I, and I finished it when... One thing when my shack has is a very good fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> that could be the spot to put the only remaining that's copy an interesting, of the transcript. So, so, I guess part of that's, that's advice, isn't it? Really knowing what your skills are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and what they're not. Yeah, all right, good on you. Thanks, Thanks mate. Thank right, you. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes and articles on all things human-centred, customer-focused, innovation and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru.